Father, we come before you with our tithes and our offerings today with grateful and cheerful hearts, and we present them to you and ask that you receive them in mercy, uh, that you would be glorified, trusting that uh, we, we acknowledge, Father, our dependence upon you. We have nothing, nothing that hasn't first come from you. And so as our good Father, who provides for all of our needs according to your riches and glory, we give back now, and we pray your blessing on both the gift and the giver in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would now give us ears to hear and open the eyes of our heart that we, we might understand that this would not be a time that we, we tune out. This would not be a time that we allow the weight of the world on our shoulders to imagine and think about all of the things that have gone this past week or could go wrong this next week or all the things that we need to do. Lord, would you give our attention to your word now and help us to hear that you may be pleased in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through uh, this now chapter 5 of Matthew. We're working our way through the book of Matthew. We're here in the Beatitudes. This is the fourth and final uh, st- uh, sermon uh, in, in the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the, the eighth and final Beatitude in verses 10 to 12. The Beatitude itself is a little bit puzzling. All the others kind of make sense to us in terms of the spiritual growth that we think about, but most of us don't think of persecution being persecuted for even for righteousness sake as something that we would grow in or mature in. But yet here it is. And here it is at the end. It kind of serves as the conclusion. It's also puzzling because in verse 12, we're exhorted to rejoice and be glad in it. And that may be the hardest part of all of this. Okay, we have to suffer. Okay, we'll face opposition for the sake of the gospel for following Christ. But Rejoice and be glad in it. How are we supposed to do that? How is that possible? And yet we see this taught in a number of places in Scripture. We read one from First Peter this morning. We might think of James, which we'll look at briefly in a minute. The answer that is given in the text in verse 12 is, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, or your heavenly reward that you await is great. Yet we still feel the tension in this life. None of us want to suffer. None of us says, sign me up. I want to do that. 
I want to endure that. I want people to, you know, sucker punch me in the, t- in the stomach. Uh, we don't want it. And then on top of that, to rejoice and be glad. We feel the tension. And so it's important for us to remember, and if you've been with us, we, we've talked about this quite a bit, but just for summary's sake, there's an arc uh, in terms of our understanding of the Beatitudes, that there is a flow in them. Not necessarily that they all fall, follow in order in our lives uh, consecutively in every case, but there is a sense of movement through them that they will follow the other. And so this is kind of uh, one of the marks of Christian maturity, that as we grow in grace, we'll face opposition. Others will not like us. Yet we've also seen, and this is important to remember, that these are the work of God's grace in our lives, not a list of behaviors that we perform. That is, God does not become our debtor because we do these things. God doesn't owe us because we develop any of these attitudes. Rather, each is developed in us by His Spirit, by His grace, so that both the attitude and the blessing are his gift to us. And when we remember this, it transforms how we understand all of the Beatitudes, but I think it's especially true of this last one, that we could see that there is a call to persecution, a call to endure it, not to seek persecution, but to endure persecution, and then the exhortation that follows rejoice, rejoice exceedingly, we could say, and be glad in it. Persecution for the sake of righteousness becomes a testing of our faith. We saw that in 1 Peter. It is a, uh, a proof that our faith is genuine. If we endure persecution for righteousness' sake, it proves the genuineness of our faith. I mentioned the passage in James, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." And while James is speaking very broadly of various trials, it would include all kinds of trials that we face in this life, not just persecution for righteousness' sake. It would certainly include this in that. And so then part of our rejoicing in the end, part of our rejoicing in the uh, persecution that we face is linked to our growth in Christ-likeness, and it demonstrates the proof that Christ has taken hold of us. How else? How else? Can we explain it? Who else is enduring persecution for the joy that is set before them? It is only in Christ that we can do this. And since Christ is the perfect embodiment of the Beatitudes, then he he is both our example and the fulfillment of each. And we certainly see persecution for righteousness' sake in the life of Christ. His entire life is a testament to this. But especially in his death do we see this ultimate display of enduring evil being unjustly crucified, being reviled, and being persecuted unrighteously. So we then can understand if he is not only our example, but our fulfillment of these things, which we receive by faith, that we are called to join him in this suffering. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So the question that's before us today as we look at this passage, passages, do we see and understand 
and take hold of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That is, is Christ most precious, most glorious, and most worthy in our hearts? Or are there other things that we desire more, other things that we wish to possess? Philippians says everything else is rubbish. Everything we could ever want or gain is ultimately a loss or a liability. In the end, it is only Jesus. Knowing him and being known by him according to the unending love of our triune God. If any other motivation surpasses our knowing Christ, be it our performance and our self-righteousness, be it pleasure or possessions, be it power or fame, plug in anything here. All of this is worthless. Count it as rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus as our Savior, Redeemer, and friend. So my hope for us today is not simply to understand that we're called to endure persecution, but that we can indeed rejoice and be glad in it to the glory of God, that we can be known by God and be called His own, that is, His children, children of the Heavenly Father, is all that is worthwhile and, frankly, all that will remain in the end. So look now at verse 10, and we see here the, the, the last, the eighth beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to go through each verse, so we're kind of going to circle around. They're all connected. So we're going to come back to some, some parts, just explain that so you don't think I'm repeating myself when I get to verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. But the first thing we notice about this beatitude is that the type of persecution is specified, that it is for the sake of righteousness. So this excludes any persecution that's not for the sake of righteousness. And we understand that everyone endures persecution in life. I mean, to live is to, to face opposition in various ways. Believers, unbelievers, everyone that lives knows some form of persecution. We've all been falsely accused. We've all been wronged by someone with power over us. We've probably all been robbed of something that we've earned. We've all been left out or ignored in some setting. Some of us may have been physically harmed for what we believe. Everyone knows persecution in a world racked by sin. There's a whole range of harassing or oppressive treatment, to use the dictionary definition, that people have suffered throughout history. But the righteousness or the, the, the persecution that is for the sake of righteousness that is described here is explained in the following verses. So that's why we're going to kind of go through them and come back around. In verse 11, we see he expands what he means by persecution for righteousness' sake. You're reviled, you're persecuted, and falsely accused on my account. And then he brings in this comparison in verse 12 with the persecution that the prophets of the Old Testament faced. So first, the clarification is that the mistreatment is on the account of Christ. So it is for the sake of righteousness, and it's on the account of Christ. That is, the persecution is by faith in Christ, which is demonstrated in our worship of Him, our confession of Him, our allegiance to Him. And as we read this morning as well, Jesus foretold us. He told His disciples. For example, Matthew ten twenty two: The world will hate you for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or John fifteen nineteen: If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In his first epistle, John writes, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John Stott comments on this and says that the persecution that is for the sake of righteousness that is on the account of Jesus' name is such because they find distasteful 
the righteousness for which we hunger and thirst, and because they have rejected the Christ we seek to follow. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. It's important to understand that this persecution is rooted in a rejection of God. That's where this is coming from. The Creator who has revealed Himself in creation and revealed Himself most clearly and especially in the sending of His Son, the person of Christ, everyone is without excuse. Knowing this should then cause us to understand because it's not rooted in in, in necessarily hatred of us. It's ultimately rooted in hatred of God, a rejection of God. This should also help us realize it's not a rejection of us because we're holy or just or full of love, but rather because God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, and perfectly full of love. And in the same way that it is for righteousness' sake and on the account of Christ's name, we must also realize that there is some persecution we will face as Christians that doesn't fit this category, although we might claim that it does. How many Christians have called out persecution because they were a jerk? Somebody just called them out on it. That's not persecution for righteousness' sake. How many have cried the same when they mishandled their boss's resources by using company time to witness? Persecution, yet they were robbing their boss. How many have claimed this when they spoke hatefully and had malice in their hearts in responding to the ways of the world? Persecution. These are often the people who speak only of Jesus as flipping tables over in the temple and never of his description of his own heart as gentle and lowly. These people typically believe that the government, if it would just be Christian enough, would save us all. Such an attitude is ultimately a rejection of the power of the gospel because it is only the gospel that can do in our hearts what no flipping of tables or legislation could ever do. That is changing our hearts, bringing us from death to life. All of us would agree there are times to flip tables, although just as in the life of Jesus, it was the exception, not the norm, Even more so, maybe in our lives, it should be the exception, not the norm. We shouldn't be too eager to do that. All of us would agree that good laws are something that we should pursue. But our hope is not in our ability to change hearts, nor is it in the morality of mankind, but in the gracious and powerful work of the cross to bring the dead to life. That's where our hope is. The gospel works in power. Make no mistake about it. It is just not in the way that we perceive or desire power. We want to see strength, and God puts on flesh and comes in humility. We want to see conquering, and God uses nobodies to proclaim the gospel and disciple believers in the faith. We all think of the famous Christians throughout time. There was someone who led them to Christ. You don't even know their name or that they ever existed. Who taught their Sunday school class, who prayed for them, who loved them, who discipled them in the faith, and you don't even know they ever existed. We want to see conformity. Yet God works through weak vessels who are stumbling and falling to straighten bent paths. He does all of this in an upside down way. Why? Because in our weakness, his power is made much of. In our weakness, he is glorified. In our stumbling and falling, people see a glorious and all-powerful God. So may we not mistake as noble such persecution that is not for righteousness' sake, But instead, may we trust Jesus and his power alone to display his glory and never trying to seek power for self-righteousness' sake. That's the enemy here. That's that's our go-to for self-righteousness' sake. We are 
you know, we're great at defending ourselves. How many conversations do we have in our heads where we argue our case? Of course, we always win the case, right? Because there's no one arguing in our head. It's just us. But we defend and defend and defend for self-righteousness sake. One other point to note is in verse 12 that he compares our suffering for the sake of righteousness to that of the Old Testament prophets. And since we just went through Jeremiah, we don't have to go through and look at examples of this because we just spent over a year looking at many examples in the life of Jeremiah where he suffered persecution for the sake of righteousness. But I would simply point out that the mistreatment that the prophets of the Old Testament endured was more the norm than the exception. And God told them this. I mean, he told uh, Isaiah that the people would be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. And because they didn't want to hear and they didn't want to see, they rejected the prophets' messages and they rejected the prophets, persecuted them. The blessing that comes from this beatitude is then pronounced, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the very same blessing of the first beatitude. And so, in a sense, it serves as an inclusio or brackets around the whole Beatitudes. This is the the whole of the citizen uh, of the kingdom of God. This is what a citizen of God's kingdom looks like, these descriptions. And it also reminds us of the promise that is ours, our ultimate reward, that the complete inheritance of the kingdom is what awaits us who trust in Christ as Savior. Now, circling back around to verse 11, let's look a little bit closer. We see the expansion of the explanation of what it means to suffer for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice the change in speech. He goes from third person, which is what he's used throughout the Beatitudes. Now he turns it to second person. Blessed are you, in a way personalizing the message to the disciples who would hear this sermon and us who would read it. You are pronounced blessed when these things happen in your life. We've already considered the certainty of such things happening in the life of the believer. As you recognize your poverty of spirit, as you mourn over your sin and the sins observed in our world, as you grow in meekness and hunger and thirst for righteousness and on and on and on, as you grow in grace, one of the results of spiritual maturity is that you will face opposition. It is a result of our growth in Christ-likeness, in our sanctification, that we will suffer. So that becoming like Him in character, we will face mistreatment as He did. And this is why we can count it all joy. Because the persecutions we endure have a work to do in us. Again, none of us would sign up for this. But there's a work that suffering for the sake of righteousness has to do in us. It joins us in fellowship with Christ, as we read in Philippians 3. It proves the genuineness of our faith, as we read in 1 Peter 3. It tests and assures and strengthens us that we may be complete, not lacking anything, as we read in James 1. And so our faith is proved genuine, not just to the world, but to us. To us, that we would grow in our assurance the forms of persecution are given in three, reviling, persecuting, utter evil, uttering uh, all kinds of evil against us. So we could say this is reproach or hatred, slander, and then just persecution, mistreatment, being, being opposed. So the first is hatred. We saw this already. Jesus, will be, uh, Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I find it interesting that the world in our day has co-opted this term hate. Uh, in many cases, to use against those who stand for godly righteousness. 
Anything they disagree with is called hate speech. It's brilliant strategy because who wants to say they're hateful? Who wants to say, yeah, that's me. I want to hate people. Nobody does. And so it's intimidating and it's intentionally intimidating. It's a form of bullying. And so let me tell you, don't be intimidated by the use of this term. At the same time, don't capitulate to the ways of the world. That's the intention of using such terminology. One of the woes that the prophet Isaiah spoke is, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is what God considers hateful or evil. So what we must do instead is know the good law of God that he's given to us for our good, for his glory, that we might discern what is evil and cling to what is good. The second is simply mistreatment or persecution. Indeed, we may experience that as believers, maybe uh, losing a job because of our faith or losing clients because of our faith. We might be ostracized by our peers because of our faith. And yet for many believers around the world, it is much more serious. I wouldn't make light of any persecution for righteousness sake. God sovereignly placed us all in this country at this point in history this is, not, this, is not, this is not to shame us in any way. But I just want us to grasp that there are people who endure their entire lives under threat, under beatings, uh, some their lives end simply because of their faith. We shouldn't forget them. We should pray for the persecuted church around the world, and hopefully we will continue to grow in doing this. I noticed two ladies this morning who were praying. I won't call them out for sake of embarrassment, but I'm 99% sure that's what they were doing this morning is gathering together to pray for the persecuted church. We need to do more of that. We need to pray for those who suffer beatings and death and other atrocities for nothing more than faith in Christ. We ought to dedicate our energies, using our time, our strength, to spend in prayer, to labor for their perseverance and for their deliverance. That's not a waste of time. That's a good use of time. The third is slander, uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely. Now, if the accusation is true, as I mentioned earlier, if we're a jerk and somebody calls us a jerk, then we're just a jerk. Okay, so this is, this, is not, this is not just us calling something slander, because a lot of people do this. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how many times I see ministers who have fallen into sin, and their result, rather than admitting and confessing and repenting, is to say, oh, those people are speaking falsely about me, and it's, they're trying to bring my ministry down. We've all heard those stories. That's, that, that's not what's being spoken of here. That should not be the case in our lives. We shouldn't tolerate such. Instead, what this is speaking of is actual slander, false accusations against us because of their hatred of God. Peter addressed this in another part of his letter, in his first epistle. He, he's speaking to a persecuted church. That's why there's so much from Peter that addresses this. But in a different passage, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, he writes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good 
if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Notice the first thing Peter says, and that's 1 Peter 3, 14 to 17. 1 Peter, uh, or rather, what Peter says at the very beginning is he quotes this beatitude. If you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Paraphrase. And then he describes what our response should be. Folks, this is immensely practical right here. How do you How do you endure and face persecution for righteousness' sake? Here it is. Don't fear. Don't be troubled. Honor Christ in your hearts. Be ready to give a reason for your hope. You may not always get a chance, but be ready. Doing so with gentleness and respect. Maintaining a good conscience. We could spend a whole sermon just on those two alone. Because so often we don't. And we all know this. I mean, we know it after the fact. I mean, I always joke that uh, family gatherings, one of the things I've learned, we, you know, all these um, uh, Airbnbs are minimum of seven days. So you plan a family gathering and you do the seven-day thing and you realize, or I've learned, three days is, is enough. <laughs> I love my family. But after three days, I do have to do a ton more repenting than if I just left on the morning of day four. And so I've, I've told them that, like, three days, that's it. That's all I'm going to commit to. Um, I know that I often do not respond with gentleness and respect. How much more so when we face opposition from a world that hates God? So we have work to do in here. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of growth that we can do. But our reaction must be seasoned by grace. It must taste like grace. And when it is, the outcome may be that they are put to shame. It's implied that they may even respond to the gospel hope that we possess because we're called to declare a reason for the hope. But ultimately, Peter says it's just better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The beauty of our suffering is that we're declared blessed. The gospel message is declared and put on display all for the glory of God. All of us are not going to suffer in the same way. We're going to suffer different from the person sitting next to us. We're going to suffer differently from a person in another country around the world. But our response as Christians is, 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 all, is, is to be the same. It's, it's explained. We're not to fear, but honor Christ in our hearts, giving testimony to our hope with gentleness and respect. That's what it looks like. That's what responding to persecution for the sake of righteousness in the name of Jesus looks like. Then in verse 12, we're called to, in in such persecutions, rejoice and be glad or be exceedingly glad that word can be translated. How do we do this? Is this an act? Are we called to fake it? No, it says we can do so because our reward is great in heaven. How many times do we make life-altering decisions to achieve something that awaits us? because we desire that thing so much. We save up for vacations. We save up for retirement. Uh, you know, we might diet for an event, a wedding or something to look good, but we'll do things, we'll labor to accomplish things for something that awaits us. And that's the perspective that we need to understand. Now, most of us don't have the view of heaven that we should. Uh, we think much more about what's going on in this world, usually all the bad things that could happen or have already happened and then could repeat themselves, rather than having a heavenly mind. We should not be like the world that we fear missing out on something, but rather 
We are to have our eyes fixed on what's await, what awaits us, our ultimate hope. Because our outcome is secure through His atoning work and His righteousness that we are declared, uh, our status is sure. Our reward is sure. And this reward of our faith, note that it's all of grace. God is not our debtor. We, we don't earn anything in any meritorious sense by our good works. We are called to good works. It is the fruit of our faith, but it is not meritorious in that we earn anything. It's all by grace. But this reward of our faith delivers a testimony to a watching world and strengthens us in our assurance that our faith is genuine. How else could we endure unless we had something that was worth more and a reward that awaits us, which is Christ? It's not just heaven. It's Christ himself. He is worthy. He is worth giving it all up, losing it all, facing all the persecution. He is worth it because he awaits us in the end. We read in Philippians 3 this morning, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What a privilege it is to share with our Savior. It's a fellowship that declares to ourselves and to others that he has truly taken hold of us, that he will hold us fast till the end. Jesus then adds, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've already touched on the comparison that Jesus makes here. I want to point out one other thing. Jesus spoke at the end of verse 11, speaking of what persecution for righteousness sake and in his name looks like. And then he says that first that it's on his account, and then he brings in this comparison from the Old Testament prophets. And so what's happening is this this Christological connection that Jesus makes that we see his claim to deity. That the prophets were persecuted as Yahweh's messengers, and we are persecuted on Jesus' account. So he subtly notes his deity here that the two are the same. To revile against us in Jesus' name is the same as those who revile the prophets in the name of Yahweh. The promise for the beatitude, once again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is now, uh, is true now. Ours is the kingdom of heaven, present tense, although we don't yet know it fully, but it's especially true of the future. One commentator writes, all the grace and the glory that results when God in Christ is recognized and obeyed as sovereign is ours even now and will be ours in increasing, ever-increasing measure. And so the question is, do we desire this? Do we desire to inherit the kingdom? Is Jesus worth it? Is he most glorious? We confess it many times that he's not. We instead want comfort in this life. That's probably my biggest idol. Uh, I, I want to be safe and secure. That's what my mind tends to think about. How can I ensure that there's, there's something in my temporal future that is all going to be dust one day? How stupid is that, right? It's nuts. And yet that's where all my time and energy seems to, seems to be drawn. When I have a secure future that will endure forever, compare eternity to time, your 80, 90 years, whatever we get out of this life, I'm thinking maybe 60, I don't know. But whatever we get out of this life, compare that to eternity. It doesn't measure up. Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as a pearl of great price. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In our hearts, 
do we desire to give it all up to follow him? Let me say to you all today that Jesus is worth it. He laid down his rights. He laid down his heavenly position to come and to die for all our wrongdoing. Not only that, he obeyed the law in every way and through faith transfers his righteousness to us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of the great love of our God, he sent his son. And this great act of love demonstrates the worthiness of selling it all to buy the priceless pearl of the kingdom. Jesus is worth it. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So may we rejoice and be exceedingly glad even in persecution. Because Jesus is glorious, he is worth it all. May we exclaim with the psalmist and say, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our desires are so so splintered, so fickle. In this moment, we hear your word proclaimed, these various passages, and, and our hearts are moved, but we know that as soon as we get out of here, things are going to begin to weigh us down. On moments, if not hours, we're, we're going to be back into the battle of where our affections are pulled and torn in different directions. Lord, Christ is worth it. Would you help us to see this and hold on to this, that we might know that he has first taken hold of us and he will never let us go. May this strengthen and assure us so that we might, in the face of persecution for the sake of righteousness, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, knowing that the testing of our faith not only produces a steadfastness in us, but becomes a, a, a testimony, a reason for the hope that is declared to the world, and thus also a strengthening of our assurance that we might know that our faith is tested and genuine. So my prayer today, Lord, is that we would see Christ as worth it, that you would open our hearts to see his glory, his majesty, his worthiness. And then, Lord, make us glad to cling to him as he has first clung to us, that we would not flee from persecution, Not that we need to seek it, Lord, but that we would be ready to withstand it, to endure it, to even rejoice in it. And Lord, I would add again that we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution in ways that we we can't even imagine, simply because they trust you. We pray for their perseverance. We pray especially for their deliverance according to your will. Lord, go before us as we begin a new week. Strengthen us for what lies ahead. 
Make us glad that we are your children, known by you and that we know you, that you have bestowed your love upon us and strengthen and give us wisdom to walk in a way that's pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our response. It's in our supplement.